Hi, I'm Irwin McManus. I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I want to also bring you into some exciting things that are happening here. If you go to the Mosaic app, you will learn about our conference coming up this year, about MSC's new album and their tour across the country. And you can learn how to connect and be more involved in Mosaic in so many different ways. And by the way, we now have the Mosaic YouTube channel. And you can go access not only these talks, but other fresh and new materials that are being created specifically for that channel. And so if you want to be connected in a richer and fuller way, uh, not only be a part of the podcast, get to the Mosaic app and get to the channel, and we'll see you there. We mentioned earlier that in two weeks, I'm starting a series called Life's Toughest Questions. And one of the reasons I'm excited about that is that there's nothing more irrelevant than answering questions no one is asking. But there may be nothing more powerful than finally answering the question that has always held you, held you captive. And as soon as I announced that we're going to address life's toughest questions, people started sending me questions right away, because there's always those overachievers. <laughs> and they sent me questions, and I should have ignored them, but they won. Their questions were intriguing and have shaped my thinking for the last several weeks. And last week on Twitter, I received a question that I wanted to address tonight. Erwin McManus, if you could only wish one change on the world in your lifetime, what would it be? I I think that's a a great question. It's profound and provocative, unless, of course, you're asking it at the Miss Universe contest, and (laughs) then you know the answer is world peace. (laughs) But if if you pause for a moment and, and reflect on this, the question has a dilemma. If you could only wish one change on the world in your lifetime, what would it be? Because the moment... You choose that change, you've left everything else unchanged. And so in the backdrop of of violence and war, of chemical warfare, of unimaginable, inhumane, horrific human actions against the innocent, we might all say, well, that one change that we would wish for is the end of war. But then you'd have to be more specific and, and broad and say, well, then the end of violence but then we also know how nuanced we are as humans in our use of violence. He said the end of abuse. But then we haven't even touched on hunger and poverty, homelessness, abandonment. And, and, and would it be negligent of us to not say the end of hunger or the end of poverty Or maybe it would be that the end of poverty would be the end of war. Or maybe it would be the end of greed. And it would root at everything. But the truth is that no matter what we chose, we would leave still the world in turmoil. Which is why when I read this question, as difficult as it may seem, it was really easy for me to answer. I gave it all the appropriate time a Twitter question deserves. 140 seconds. Erwin McManus, if you could only wish one change on the world in your lifetime, what would it be? The answer is so simple. I would wish one thing, and it would be to change the human heart. And this is at the center of all the confusion around this moment in the life of Jesus. 
This moment that we just stepped into where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and the people celebrate his coming and they take palm branches and they wave them in honor of him and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king of Israel in this moment of triumphal celebration in what is known as the triumphal entry. Those who were celebrating Jesus didn't even know who he really was. They were celebrating a victory they didn't even understand. Have you ever found yourself caught in a crowd that's cheering and you don't even know what they're cheering about? So you start cheering too? (laughs) You ever found yourself at a sporting event that you didn't even like, but you were invited so everyone else is cheering, so you start cheering? You have no idea what just happened. Someone said something about a home run and you're just, yeah! Yeah! So the multitudes were cheering Jesus, but they didn't even know why they were cheering Jesus. They were celebrating his coming, but they had no idea why he was coming. They were celebrating what he he had come to do, and they had no idea what he was about to do. And and in fact, if, if anything, it seemed as if they were celebrating before the game was over. I've seen way too many games where once I thought it was winning... When I thought that the victory was sealed and then the comeback came. I remember playing football in high school and we were playing this team and we were down and they were singing a song on the sideline that was telling us not to cry, but they were waving goodbye and they were singing songs of our defeat until the very last second when My brother threw a touchdown pass that won the game in the very last play. It's amazing when you think you've won and you lose. But what about when you thought God had won and then he seemed defeated? Because they were celebrating Jesus, but he was hours away from being stripped of all of his dignity, beaten and crucified. How is it that we can so quickly misunderstand the triumph of God? What I love about this moment is that they got it exactly right for all the wrong reasons. They were celebrating the triumph of God, even though they were about to see the defeat of God. They were celebrating the coming of a king, even though he wasn't the kind of king they expected. They're celebrating the coming of the Messiah, even though just hours later they would determine he was not their Messiah. In this moment, he was the Christ, but in a moment to come, he would be the criminal. And so the moment begins by telling us the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the Passover, It is not incidental that Jesus passed through in the very moment where the people of Israel were to remember when God passed through. This was the moment where they celebrated the Passover where the people of Israel were protected by the blood on their doors from the angel of death that passed through Egypt. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's a phrase that some of us have become accustomed to. We've heard it before, Hosanna, but I wonder how many of us have actually declared that phrase and have no idea what it means. 
So that, that phrase Hosanna has been contextualized around praise and adoration and celebration and worship, but it's actually a phrase of desperation more than it is a phrase of celebration. Hosanna means save, we pray. It means save us. This is our prayer. And so this phrase Hosanna can only become a declaration of praise and celebration if the prayer of desperation has been answered. If God has not saved and heard our prayers, there is nothing to celebrate with the Hosanna. But, but here, here is the, I think the, the quandary is that, that we want God to save us from the very wrong things. It's not that we don't need saving from the things we ask saving from. It's that they do not solve the problem. They do not solve the cause of why we constantly need to be saved. That that phrase is is so antiquated to be saved. It, It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me feel as if I'm a part of an archaic belief system to be saved. And in this moment, we have to ask the question, what were they looking for? What were they asking God for when they were declaring, save, we pray? What were they asking God to save them from? I don't think they were very different from us. I think they were asking God to save them from the conflicts and crises in their lives. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire. They were the slaves of the Romans. They were conquered by this enemy army and they wanted the Messiah, the Christ, to come to set them free. Of course they would. I would. They wanted God to step in with his power where they were powerless. I think that's where most of us first cry out to God in desperation. When we've made a mess of our lives and we need help. Where we need God to intervene when we've written our own story and painted ourselves in a corner. And we need the ex machina. We need God out of the machine to step into human history and save us from the mess of us. And, and, And frankly, even people who don't believe in God think that people who believe in God should be involved in saving the world in some way. See, as long as we're saving the world from the right things... See, we need to be saving the world from violence and war. There's no one who would say that it was a bad thing that people who believe in God were involved in trying to bring peace in the world. In fact, I say that's what you should do. That's what religion should do, is move you to try to create peace in the world. And if there's a God, that's what he should be doing. See, there are a lot of people who know exactly what God's job description should be. If God is out there, if he exists, if he cares, if he can, God should end the violence in the world. God should get involved in these wars and stop them. I mean, how many people have given up their faith, have stopped believing in God because God doesn't seem to intervene where we need his intervention? So it's not that we don't want God to save us. We need God to save us from the mess of human history. See, would you in any way resist a God who would save the world from its hunger? I mean, if only God would save us from poverty. If only God would get involved with the issues of injustice. Wouldn't it be great if God would just show up and solve all those problems? And so when we get involved in these human dilemmas, 
People go, well, that's, that's what you should be doing if you believe in God. You, you, you should be feeding the poor. You, you should be housing the homeless. You should be bringing justice and mercy. That's what people who believe in God should be doing. See, it's politically correct to believe that we should be saving the world from the problems that haunt us. But you cross the line the moment you talk about saving ourselves. See, we want a God who saves us from the world we've created, but never saves us in this world we've created. We want God to change the world without changing us. We want God to fix the world without fixing us. And we don't see the connection. We don't actually realize that the human dilemma is an extension of the human soul. And when they cried out, Hosanna, they wanted Jesus to fix the problem. But they didn't want to own that they were the problem. <laughs> and, I, and I know it's not PC to tell you this, but you need someone to save you. Not to save you from the consequences of your choices. Well, you do need that too. <laughs> not to save you. From the brokenness that is evidenced in the relationships in your life. Not to save you from the mess that you've made. You need someone to save you from you. See, when Jesus walked this path, when he stepped into this triumphal entry, they thought he was going to save them from the problems in the world. But he did not come to save them from their temporary effects. He came to save them from the cause of the problem. I can tell you, if God ended every war on this planet today, but did not change us, we would be at war tomorrow. If God ended poverty and injustice today, but did not change us, there would be poverty and injustice tomorrow. Because as much as we want to distance ourselves from the problems in the world, we cannot separate ourselves from the human dilemma. We are the human crisis. We're not just in a human crisis. Which for me was my greatest frustration. Before I ever knew God or understood who Jesus was, I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make the world a better place. I wanted to end poverty and suffering and And the frustration for me is I wanted to change the world, but I couldn't even change me. I wanted to make the world a better place, but I couldn't even make my soul a better place. And there came this this painful realization that I was powerless to change what needed to be changed the most. And as uncomfortable as I was with it, I had to come to a place where I didn't just ask God to save me from the life I created, to save me from the world I created, but to save me from what was inside of me that kept creating this world I wanted to run from. What are you asking for? What are you asking God to save you from? Because it begins... By realizing that you need to be saved from yourself. And that what Jesus came to do was not to deal with the symptoms, but to deal with the cause. And the cause is us. We are the ones who are guilty for the condition of human history. 
Then it says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's not really that epic. I tried to read it like it was epic, but it's just not that epic. It's it's bad writing. I'm just going to say it, okay? And then Jesus came in on a donkey's colt, on a young donkey. Not even like a grown-up donkey, just like a young donkey. And it says, do not fear, daughter of Zion. I don't know. If my deliverer is coming on a donkey, I'm going to get a little afraid. I'm going, Romans, donkey. If Jesus is the Messiah, okay, I get it. He comes without his army because he's going to pull his army together when he gets there. Because he's bold. He's fearless. But if, if I were writing the story of God, I'm going, this is the triumphal entry. That's how I'm going to know. This is your moment of triumph. Get a white stallion. Or a black stallion. Your choice. Just get a stallion. Get a man horse. Get a horse that you have to jump up to get up on. And then when you come in, make sure it's sunset. Magic hour. Come in on that horse and let that horse be weighty so it's hoofs, boom, boom. Hit the desert sand and the sand rises up all around him. He has a scarf that's blowing in the wind. And the children are running down the streets. He's coming. He's coming. It's that man, mama. He's coming. And the women in Jerusalem. It's Jesus. That's a man's man. And even the men know. Yeah, that's a man. I can see him, Jesus, coming in. You can't see the washboard, but you know it's there. His ripped muscles holding the reins. Oh, that powerful stallion. It's all slow motion. Jesus is coming! And you see him from a distance. It's all silhouette. There's the music of a... Sp- of an Italian where Western, and you feel like as if Clint Eastwood's about to come in. Maybe he has a cigar. I'm not sure, but, but Jesus is coming. He has a sword and a bow. And as he enters Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees run and hide behind closed doors. They wonder what's going to happen because the king has come. See, that's the way the story should be written. <laughs> but he comes in on a donkey, okay? I, mean, I, I feel like Shrek should be there. And go, you know, like, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa! Can you imagine those 12 disciples? They prepared the masses. He's coming! The Messiah is coming! Oh. I mean, you think, Jesus, I know you were in a hurry, but you couldn't find a horse? It's like, well, you know, it's like showing up when they expect you in a Ferrari and a Fiat. It's like, you know, it's like, 
or Prius. <laughs> and, and I love how John tries to explain this to us. He says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. It's good. And as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I love the next line. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. <laughs> and I asked the question, what's good about this? To help me understand why I should not be afraid if God is coming to town in a, on a donkey. And it was, oh, but you need to understand, this is how it was written. Or write it better. Because <laughs> we need a God who comes on a stallion, not on a mule. Or maybe not. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. See, here's a paradox. The masses were coming to Jesus because they heard that he raised a man from the dead. That he simply said, Lazarus, arise. And a man dead four days came out of the tomb, still wrapped up in his burial shroud, and he was alive. And this is the power that Jesus had, and they'd expected Jesus to come powerful. But he came humble. And it confused them. And they didn't understand why this was a good thing. But let me tell you why it's a good thing. It's because being in the presence of God is a terrifying thing. See, God is holy and he's perfect. God has the right to judge. God sees everything. And he is everywhere. And I know people have tried to console me in the past Remember, Erwin, God's always with you. And I'm like, well, I'm not always comfortable with that. You know? How about you? Well, how would you live your life differently if you knew God was in the middle of every action you've ever taken? If whatever you dragged yourself into, you dragged God into. How would it affect your life if you knew he saw right through you and, and heard not only every word but every thought? It makes me uncomfortable. And if God came in on a stallion, I think I would run and hide in the dark because I would be too afraid to stand in the light. But he came on a mule. He came on a donkey. He came in humility. He came so that we could access him and not be afraid of him, so that we could trust him and know him and his mercy and his compassion. You see, they wanted a certain kind of king because a certain kind of king can set them free from the problems that would never fix their lives. They didn't know they needed a king who would come on a mule because he came to serve them and to clean the mess of their soul. We we have a lot of events at our house, and I can tell you it's a disaster. I'm not talking about the event itself or even the mess after the event. It's a disaster before the event. I see, we, Kim has friends, and she actually brings them and hires them to clean the house. But what she does is that she cleans the house before they clean the house. 
I said, honey, why are you cleaning the house? Because the cleaners are coming. And I'm like, oh, I don't understand. And, uh, and she goes, well, you don't understand. Because I want the house to be clean. And she works so hard. See, so whenever you get invited to our house, I know we have to do a lot of cleaning because we don't want you to see how we really live. (laughs) Who we really are. Imagine a God who shows up unexpectedly and walks into your messiest room and walks into the mess of your soul and he says, it's okay. I knew it was this bad. And I came here to clean what you could not make clean again. Why is this a good thing? Because this is the only kind of God that can fix the problem of who we are. And then it tells us this in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I love the Pharisees. I, I love how they get it right when they get it all wrong. And, and this statement, see, this is getting us nowhere. They're doing everything they can to stop Jesus, to shut him down. They can't, just, they can't seem to figure out how to shut Jesus down. See, if Jesus tried to use power, they could just overpower him. Try to use force, they could just find force. They didn't know how to deal with Jesus because he was using weapons that had never been used before. See, they had never known a king like him. They'd never known a warrior like him. His only weapon was love. His posture was servanthood. I mean, what do you do with a man who is God and is more humble than you? What do you do with a God who will not use his power to prove his worth to be worshipped, but uses his power to prove your worth to be loved? What do you do with someone like Jesus? And they said, see, this is getting us nowhere. And they were so right. They didn't even know they were so right. I know what they meant. But I think they actually said something far more profound. You see, when you live your life without God, it is getting you nowhere. When you choose to live your life at war with God, it will get you nowhere. And if you try to live this life without Jesus, I'm telling you, you're going to come to this place. This is getting us nowhere. And the only question will be how fast will you get nowhere? And how deep will you find yourself in nowhere? How lost will you be when you're nowhere? How lost will you be when you're nowhere? When you finally realize you need someone to find you and save you. But their next statement, that's the one that really... It's the one that really moves me. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I I love their summary of the impact of Jesus in that moment. Look how the whole world has gone after him. By the way, that that wasn't true. The the whole world had not gone after him. Not even like a small part of the world. Not like a sliver. Like Peter... John, James, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Judah for a little while. Just, and then there's Martha and Mary and Mary and Mary and Mary. And, and they felt like the whole world. Isn't that crazy? There were a handful of unwanted misfits, a motley crew 
of outsiders. Fishermen and tax collectors, prostitutes and outsiders, and they're afraid of what's going to happen through them. The whole world has gone after him. It must have felt like that. I feel like they're from L.A. Because <laughs> in L.A., everything is embellishment. Right? So it's, it's all big. You wouldn't believe it's huge. My part. It's huge. How many lines? Well, it's, it's, it's subtle. It's, it's called crowd three. You ever have conversations? It just feels so big. My life is falling apart. Not really. Just got one little part that's falling. It's over. Nah. It's not, we just use such big language. Right? The whole world has gone after him. It, there wasn't a whole world that even knew about him yet. But you know what? I wish they were right. See, I wish that had been true. This is their concern. See, what are you worried about if you let God be God in your life? Like, what's your great concern? What is it that holds you back from giving your life completely, utterly to Jesus? What is it that holds you from expressing your desperate need for God to give you forgiveness and give you life? See, what, what, what are the implications of, look how the whole world has gone after him? What would happen? If this were true, what were the Pharisees afraid of? How could they be afraid of me after all? What would happen if you followed Jesus and followed his way? What would happen if you chose his virtue and his values? I mean, it's a terrifying thing, isn't it? Here's a man who feeds the hungry, who heals the leper, who makes the blind see. And has the paralytic walk. Here's the man who takes the outsider, the unwanted, the unlovely, and makes them loved. Here's the man who takes the adulteress and the adulterer and forgives them and frees them from their guilt and shame. I mean, imagine a world where the world goes after him. What kind of world would we have if we all were like Jesus? We need to stop that. I, mean, I understand why we need to stop this. Are we out of our minds? What would happen if we all became like Jesus and started serving one another in love? What would happen if we all decided that to give our lives is the proof of love, not to take a life? What would happen if we began to live for others and not for ourselves? What would happen if we began to love the unlovely? To want the unwanted? Oh, the condition of the world, if the whole world had gone after him. We need to put that to a stop because we do so well without him. Or maybe this is exactly why the world is in the condition it is. Because the whole world has not gone after him. We've chosen our own way and has led us to nowhere. This last week, I was working out with Kim and the family, I think it was, and and I know, it's hard to believe I work out, but I was there. And, and I don't like working out with Kim and Mariah because they're like beasts. And they just, they're nonstop. I don't like working out with Aaron because I remember what it was like when I was younger. 
and it's painful. You go, oh, yeah, I remember when I could lift the bar with weights on it. <laughs> I remember. And he looks at me, like, come on, Dad. But that's another story. <laughs> I was there working out, doing something, I don't know, squats or step-ups or something I would never do on my own. And, and, and then all of a sudden, I found myself drifting into um, one of my imaginary worlds. And when I go into those worlds, it helps me avoid the pain of the real world. But I, but I, I, I find people there, characters there that become so real to me. I saw this little boy. He was around nine or ten years old, and he ran to his father, who was far too old to have a son that young. But he did. And, and his son walked up to him, and he said, Father, is it true that there are no dragons? His father looked at him and said, of course there are dragons. Why would you ask such a question? He said, because I was in the village, and there was a man who said that dragons are only myths. There are legends, concoctions of our own imaginations. And the father said, oh, that's because dragons only go to war against the living. They never bother the dead. And then the little boy looked at him and said, father, have there always been dragons? And he said, yes and no. He said, what, what, what do you mean? Where did they come from? And then I did another squat, another leg up. And I was waiting for his father to answer, and then he said, oh, there was a time where dragons only lived in the hearts of men, and then our fear released them. They've haunted us ever still, ever since. And it was so clear to me that we have these dragons that we call war and violence, dragons of suffering and hunger, dragons of injustice. And we do not realize that they only exist because they were born inside of the hearts of men. This is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. I hope there's a day where what they said becomes true. See, I'm, I'm going to fight for a day where it becomes true that the whole world has gone after him. Where we choose to walk away from a war, from a world of war and violence, to walk away from a world of greed and avarice, to walk away from a world where people live in despair and loneliness. Where we pull in those who can do something for us and push out those who have no value to us. Where we hold love hostage and dangle it at the hearts of those who feel unlovable. See, I hope there will be a day where the world will have gone after him and forgiveness has overtaken bitterness and love has overtaken hate and hope has overtaken despair and life has overtaken death. Oh, that's right. See, the crowds, they followed him because there was a man named Lazarus who was dead. And then Jesus called his name. Lazarus, arise. Wrapped up in the tomb for four days, he comes out and he says, unwrap him. 
and they take off the shroud and they find him alive and wow. And he was walking among them in this moment when Jesus entered into his ultimate triumph. And they knew he's the man who spoke a man's name and called him out of the dead. And yet, while there were some who believed, there were others who went to war against him. They were afraid of the living because all they knew was death. Wouldn't it be great if Lazarus was still alive? I mean, there is no record of him actually dying. Maybe he's like in New Jersey right now. (laughs) Wouldn't it be incredible if you could just sit down and talk to him? What's it like to be dead? Not like being alive. What's it like to come back? Epic. What did you hear? My name. He said, come forth. Arise. I didn't really have an option. Wouldn't it be? Maybe you're here. You'd say, I would, I would believe if I could just meet someone who was dead and God spoke his name and brought him back to life. Well, I want you to know that I am Lazarus. I was dead. I died a slow death. I died a death filled with despair and loneliness. I was drowning in guilt and shame. And I can tell you what dying feels like. Dying feels like drowning slowly and then fast. And I remember taking my last breath and surrendering to death. And I remember when Jesus called my name. He said, Erwin, arise. See, I'll never forget the day where I was dead and walking in a shroud and lost in my darkness. And I heard this voice just call out my name, Erwin, arise. And I am here to witness of the living because Jesus came on a donkey because he didn't have to prove he could ride a stallion because he could call your name out and take you from death to life. And they didn't expect it. They didn't know it was coming. They celebrated ultimate triumph and they didn't see that the cross was just in front of him. But it was Jesus who knew that it was only love that could save us from the power of death. It was only love that could bring you back to life. I wonder today if you've heard him call out your name. The declaration of the ultimate triumph because the way God changes the world is one person at a time, one life at a time, one heart at a time. And so the question, if you could only wish one change on the world in your lifetime, what would it be? Oh, I know. It's so easy. My one wish would be to change the human heart. Because we cannot save humanity until we find 
our humanity. And only Jesus makes us human again, restores our humanity through his death and his resurrection. That's why the days before his crucifixion, it was the triumphal entry. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you've just received, allow it to go deeply into your soul, to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. And I also want to encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic, to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver and investor in bringing this message across the world. I want to thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.